Well, good evening, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors, and we're going to go into our time of teaching in just a minute. So inside your program is a green and white message note sheet that I encourage you to take that out. Uh, before we jump in, though, in this uh, new series, uh, I want to just touch base on a couple of things from last week's message. Uh, as you might imagine, I heard from a few of you last week. It wasn't actually that many, but, uh, and mostly it was very positive, uh, very excited, but I heard from a, a, a few that were, had a couple concerns, and it was awesome. It just led to some great conversation and connection. It was really, appreciate that, but it also just kind of made me aware that even though there wasn't a lot, I just wanted to clarify a couple things before we, we go in. Uh, I had a couple people last week who felt like uh, last week's message, I was sort of bagging on those believers who uh, chose to vote for our president-elect. And I was really kind of surprised by that. I thought I'd uh, set it up really well at the beginning, that, uh, that there are just bright and, and good, uh, strong believers who love Jesus, who are well, you know, good thinkers. I gave a couple examples on both sides of this issue, that it's really not that at all. My big concern last week was just if, as followers of Jesus, we always stand for what's right and good and true. And that we would never, like, minimize the faults of a candidate, even if we, we recognize they're there and we, we think, hey, because of the platform we're voting, that uh, we would never minimize or downplay those uh, in order to kind of promote our candidate. And uh, that was really the main concern. I think one thing I would do differently if I had to do it again is my main focus last week was on our president-elect because... I think most people at Rocky Peak, that's kind of, the, kind of where we, we've lived. Do we vote or do we not vote there? Uh, obviously, though, this goes both ways, right? This goes on both sides. And uh, there were, with the, the candidates we have, there were major character issues and concerns on both sides. And so it would go equally on both sides. I just didn't address that. I thought that was more obvious. But uh, anyway, uh, the, the, so, and then the second thing was um, is that, you know, I made this comment. Uh, about finding another church. And, uh, <laughs> right. and uh, I just want to clarify what that's about, um, is that, you know, here at Rocky Peak, we have a vision. And our vision is to unleash a movement of what? Passion and Christ. And what is a passion and Christ? Jesus said top two priorities is we love God and we love people. So, who we vote for as we go before God, seek his wisdom the best we can. We may disagree on that. That's a secondary issue. But how we respond to people who vote differently, that's a primary issue. We love one another. We treat each other with love and respect. And that was really the heart behind that. So what I meant by that was that if you're here, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and yet you want to hold on to hatred, you want to hold on to bigotry, you want to hold on to attack and anger and bitterness, that um, that's really completely out of alignment with our whole vision as a church. And so that would make, it would not make sense for you to stay. And so I don't know if I said that exactly the right way or not, but uh, that was really my heart in that. Uh, obviously, we all struggle with this, right? We've got emotions of this, and that's one thing to struggle. It's another thing to defend. And uh, that was it. I was thinking this week that, um, you know, about Jesus. And one time his, um, his disciples came and said, hey, some of those things you said were really offensive to the Pharisees. Did you realize that? And he's like, yeah, in fact, they're even worse than I said. And he tells them more. And so uh, I don't mind being offensive. 
I just want to be offensive uh, for, to the right people, <laughs> uh, for the right reasons, and in the right way. And so if I didn't, if I didn't succeed at any of those, please forgive me for that. Uh, but one thing I want to do today, though, is before we go in as our time of prayer, something I, I purposely chose not to do last week, I just thought emotions were too high, but I want to pray for our president-elect, um, that as followers of Jesus, one thing is so clear, 1 Timothy chapter 2, is that we're to pray for kings. And remember when, when, um, when that was written, uh, Roman emperors like Nero were in power. And uh, so regardless of our political uh, position or feelings, as followers of Jesus, we're called to pray for our leaders. And so uh, we want to pray for them. We want to pray for God to guide them. We want to continue to pray for repentance for our nation. Amen? And so let's pray together. Would you, would you join me in praying? Father, we just want to come before you as a church and we thank you for this country. We've lived in the, the amazing freedoms. And God, we just want to see that continue. We want to see your name lifted high. We want to live in a place that is characterized by righteousness and peace and justice. And so, God, we just pray that as we move into this new era as a country, we pray for our president-elect, Mr. Trump. We pray, God, that you would bless him. We pray that you would uh, draw him to yourself. We pray you'd work in and through him. Your word says that the heart of the, the king, or, or the, uh, the king, the, the heart of the king is like a water in the hands of the Lord. You can turn it wherever you want. And so, God, we pray that you are the one who raises up and lifts and tears down. We just pray that you would uh, give him tremendous wisdom. God, we pray for peace and this disharmony in our nation. We pray that you would kind of build bridges right now. We pray, God, that. Um, that you would bring uh, kind of renewal to our nation. We pray specifically for our president these first hundred days and all the cabinet positions. We pray you bring godly people around that would give great advice. And so, God, we come around, uh, we come as, as one people under your name, and your word is said to pray for those in authority that we might live lives in peace and that the gospel might go forward. And so we pray for, for uh, that, and we pray, God, as a church, that you would continue to send out a spirit of repentance on our nation, God, that we could have a true solution that would last. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 All right. That's great. Well, today we're starting this brand new series. Um, it's called Through the Storm. And for <laughs> appropriately named. And... Uh, it's funny how that works out. But anyway, uh, for those of you who are brand new, this is actually the fifth and the final series uh, in a much longer series called Sent, which is a study of one of the most important books in our New Testament written by a man named uh, Luke. He's a doctor. He's a passionate follower of Jesus, kind of documenting uh, the rise uh, and the rapid expansion of the early movement of Jesus over the first 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem as it spreads in rapidly across the Roman Empire. So the name of that book is, is called Acts. And so if you were uh, here for the last series, we, we ended a few weeks ago with, uh, in chapter 23 of Acts, where one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus, a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, he travels to Jerusalem with some of his converts, Gentile converts and friends, and he's taking a large financial gift to share with the, uh, the Jewish Christ followers there who are poor as a result of a famine that's hit that part of the world. And while he's there, um, in worshiping at the temple one day, a riot breaks out, and uh, the Roman government has to step in and kind of rescue him from being torn apart by the Jewish crowds who hate him because he, uh, he's kind of taking the message of, of God to Gentiles. And to, in their mind, that's a really bad thing to do. And so, um, and so he's, he's taken into custody, 
And uh, after a few days, he's transferred to uh, the, the, uh, the capital of the Roman province of Judea, which is the city of Caesarea, right of the seacoast, 65 miles away. And so today we're going to watch as he begins this trial process that's going to eventually end up taking him all the way to Rome. And so uh, what we're going to watch in this series is we're going to watch how God is going to use Paul in very difficult times in his, own, uh, in his own life as he goes through storms, both metaphorically and literally, uh, as God uses him to advance his purpose. And the reality is in our lives as followers of Jesus, if we're going to live life on mission, there are times where God's going to lead us into a storm. And it's there he'll do his best work in our life. It's there he'll, he'll equip us and strengthen us and, and have us the, the greatest impact. And so uh, this series, we're going to be looking at that. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this first trial that takes place in Caesarea in chapter 24 of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn those on. We're going to hit the whole chapter today. So we're moving quickly. We're going to be done with uh, Acts by, by Christmas. Uh, <laughs> like, some of you are like, Merry Christmas. Good job, Finally. Uh, I'm really excited about the new year and the two series. We've got two, two series coming right away in, in the new year, so I'm very excited about that. Um, so anyway, um, so in chapter 24 and verse 5, it says, five days later, so five days after Paul had been uh, transferred to Caesarea, uh, the high priest, who's coming from Jerusalem, 65 miles away, uh, he went down to Caesarea, which is the, the, the capital of the province of Judea with some other elders and uh, there's leaders of the nation of Israel and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Okay, now we're going to find out here that the Roman governor, and we know a lot about this man from ancient history, from writings of Josephus and others, uh, this Roman governor, as we'll see, his name is Festus. Now, like I said, we actually know a lot about him. He was quite the character. He's the sort of guy that would be on the cover of National Enquirer on a regular basis. He would be People Magazine, you know. He would just be, because he starts his, he starts his life as a Roman slave in Rome. And then through a series of events, he not only gains his freedom, he rises through the ranks to become one of the top leading officials of the Roman Empire. He's a governor over. Uh, on top of that, he's sort of notorious for his poor character. Uh, he is known for his brutal violence. He is known for his uh, womanizing uh, and for uh, kind of uh, sexual immorality. He's known for, uh, for his greed and his, his, uh, for his financial greed. So he's a well-known guy. Not, uh, the ancients didn't think very highly of him. Uh, so, so we know like a little bit more. He's, got, he's on his third wife. Right? So all three wives were princesses. Uh, the first one, catch this, she was the granddaughter of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Right? So he marries her, that's not good enough. And so he gets rid of her, and we're now on his third wife. His third wife is a Jewish woman named Drusilla. She's stunning, she's beautiful. When she's 16, she's married to another king in the area. He meets her, falls in love with her, persuades her to divorce her husband, that's his third wife. So this is the guy who's going to be the judge over this trial, all right? So good luck. All right. So here we go. So, um, so Paul was called in, and Tertullus, his attorney for the prosecution, he presents his case before Felix. Now, this is an official Roman trial. An official Roman trial, they had different kind of segments of the trial you'd go through. And in the opening segment, I won't give you the Latin term, it's really long, 
But in the, in the opening trial what, uh, segment, the, both the prosecution or the defense, when you start off, you would try to link emotionally with the judge. Okay, so you're going you're gonna to connect with them emotionally, address them personally. Uh, often flattery is going to be involved. You're trying to kind of win them. And so, uh, so here we go. So uh, Tertullus presents his case before He says, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. Uh, footnote, through your brutality and violence. Um, and your foresight has brought about reforms in the nation. So this is getting deep in here because they all hate him. Uh, everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. <laughs> okay, just like, okay, bull. All right, so four. Now, not to weary you any further, and by the way, remember that when Luke is giving us his sermons and speeches in Acts, he's just giving us his short synopsis, highlights. Um, so he says, we would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Now, what Tertullus is going to do, he's going to bring two charges against Paul. Number one is that he's a general troublemaker. He's a pest. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it's like he's a disease. You know, like, think of like Zika virus. Right? So his accusation is that wherever Paul goes, he is a threat to public safety and public order. Now, that's a very serious crime, often punishable by death in the Roman Empire. It's a very serious thing. His second accusation is to be much more specific, that the apostle Paul has desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you were here about three weeks ago, when we finished our last series, remember, this is what happened. Paul had gone to Jerusalem to deliver this gift, large financial gift, to the leadership of the, of the church. While he was there, he went up to the temple to worship. And remember, there were some Jews from the province of Asia, over by Turkey today, who were there. And they assumed that he'd brought some of his Gentile converts into the inner courts of the temple, which was a crime punishable by death. That's what it started, the riots. So he's going to bring up this case, right? That's going to be their second accusation. So he says, verse, th uh, verse 3, we have found this man to be a troublemaker. He stirs up riots among the Jews all over the world. Now, there's a little bit of truth to that, right? So we've seen in Acts. We'll come back to that. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. So Jesus was from Nazareth, what's they called Nazarene sect. And, they, uh, and he even tried, here comes the second accusation, tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By, by examining him, you yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth of all these charges we're bringing against him. And so the, the prosecution rests, right? So let's give him a short version here. So the other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So when the governor motioned for him to speak, now it's time for Paul, the defense, to speak. And he says, uh, he starts off speaking to the judge again, like they normally do. I know that for a number of years, you've been a judge over this nation, which is true. He's been there for quite a while. And so I can gladly make my defense. And this is very sincere, as we'll find out later. Festus actually has, he's married to a Jewish woman, so he knows a lot about Jews, a lot about the Bible. He uh, knows a lot about the way, which is the name of the movement of Jesus. So this is all in Paul's favor. And so uh, he says, um, okay, verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So in other words, uh, I've not been in town like creating a rebellion. I've only been here for 12 days. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. I'm not like starting a riot. That's not what I do. They cannot prove to you the charges that they are now against me. Okay, so he's defending himself. He's defending himself 
I'm not in general a rabble-rouser, and I've not desecrated the temple. So he's kind of addressed those two charges. Now he's going to make a very provocative statement. And in the NIV version, you miss this, because they, they translate it sort of differently. But what he's going to say is, I am not guilty of those charges, but I do have a confession to make. Right? So in the Greek, it says, I confess. Now, remember, we're in a court setting. When you have a person on trial saying, I want to confess, I mean, everyone's sitting up, the notebooks are coming out, the tape recorders are coming on. This is front page news. You know, so he's got them right where he wants them. Paul is still manipulating, right? He's still moving. It's like, hey, I, I am totally uh, 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 not guilty of those charges, but I, I do want to make a confession. It's like, okay, well, it's what he can confess. So he says, uh, verse 14, however, I admit, that's a work in, in Greek that's actually confess. I confess, here's my confession, I do worship the God of our ancestors and as a follower of the way. I am a Jesus follower. I worship the God of Israel, which they call a sect. I believe everything in accordance with the law and what's written in the prophet. They're, they're accusing me of not, I, I confess, I am a true blue Jew. I, I am loyal. Uh, and I have, I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now, here's what I want you to catch. What we're going to see today is Paul is going to continually take the issue off of himself, and he's going to put it on the resurrection of Jesus. He has an amazing opportunity to talk to high-level government officials and all this. And so what we're going to see, he is going to constantly coming back. So here's what Paul's going to be claiming today. We'll come back to it later. That everything the prophets and the Old Testament prophesied are all leading up to the message of Jesus. Okay? So we'll come back to that later. And he says, therefore, uh, and of course the message of Jesus focuses on his resurrection. He says, so I strive, in verse 16, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and men, because I believe there will be a resurrection, and I'll give an answer for my life. And so he says, goes back to his narrative. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem, um, so I mean, been in town for years, uh, to bring my people gifts for the poor, you know, my people, the Jews, and to present offerings. So a noble thing, right? An initiative for the poor, we'd call it. Uh, I was ceremonially clean when they found me. So I wasn't desecrating the temple. And the temple, of course, doing this. there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved. So you see how he's, he's answering their uh, accusations. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here and bring charges if they have anything against me. In a Roman court, to bring a court case without evidence or witnesses was a very serious crime. And so he's calling attention to this. This is really illegal. Um, the, 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 supposedly what I did, the witnesses aren't even here. And so he says, um, verse tw uh, 20, or those here should state what crime they found in me when I stood up before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. So remember, last time we were together, at the, and the, and it, he's, he's, he was arrested, he was taken into custody. The next day, went before the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high court. Remember, the Roman commander took him in there to say, we're going to figure out what's going on. Why do these people hate him? We can't figure it out. So he puts him in there, 
And remember, once again, Paul says, hey, the real issue here today is I believe in the resurrection. I believe in what our fathers have said. Now, remember, in the Jewish high court, most of the, the, most of the high court was Pharisees, and they believed in the resurrection. They believed in future. The, the, but the, the, the movers and shakers, the power of the high court, including the Sanhedrin, all the top political, they were Sadducees, and they didn't. And so Paul recognizes this. He says, hey, this is what's on trial. What's on trial is the resurrection of our people. And, everyone, and so this causes a second riot. Remember that back there? And so, now, so Paul says, that's all this is about. And so what Paul is very cannily doing, is what he's saying is, this is not a Roman issue. This is an internal Jewish issue. There's no issue here. You should let me free. And so Felix, there's 22, um, that... Um, is well acquainted with the way, the movement of Jesus, he adjourned the proceedings. And now he's going to postpone things. Now here's what I want you to catch. Felix knows at this point that Paul's innocent. They've had the trial. There's no evidence. And top of that, do you remember back in chapter 23 when the Roman commander sent Paul to, to uh, down with you know, armed guard, he sent a letter saying, I found nothing guilty. He already knows that, and yet what's Felix going to say? I want to wait and confer with the Roman commander. It's the whole thing is a ruse. This is just a way, but you have to understand, Felix is in a very tenuous situation politically. He has been ruler over this province for many years. He has used brutal violence to put down rebellions. They hate him. If the top Jewish leaders get too fed up with him, they can appeal to Rome against him and try to get him removed. In fact, that's exactly what's going to happen two years from now. We know it from history. And so he is trying to keep these top leaders happy, and yet he doesn't want to rule against Paul. And on top of that, he actually has some personal agenda going on, as we'll see. So Felix, who's well acquainted with the way, he adjourns the proceedings, and he says, you know, makes up this excuse, when Lysias, the commander, comes from Jerusalem, then I will decide your case. And he ordered a centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to come and take care of his needs. This is a big deal, because in Roman prisons, they didn't feed you. Um, There was no TV. Uh, It was like, you're on your own, and so if your friends aren't coming to feed, you're going to die. So this was nice. He gave him some freedom, but kept him in custody, protective custody. And uh, verse 24, so several days later, after this trial, Felix comes with his wife. Now, remember, she's number three. She's the one he ripped off from the other king. Uh, they're, they're on the cover of People this week. And uh, she's Jewish, so, so she understands the law. She understands the prophets, right? She's, she understands all this. So he brings his wife in, and he sends for Paul and he listens to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So here's Felix, this brutal, violent, sexually immoral, greedy guy. But he is really fascinated with this story about Jesus. He wants to hear more. And so he brings in Paul. And he says, Can you tell me more about what you teach and more about the way of this thing? And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Paul is sharing his personal story of conversion. I'm sure he's talking about how he used to persecute the way personally. I'm sure he's talking about the Old Testament, the prophecies, everything we've seen Paul when he teaches in Acts. And of course, Paul's also going to say that therefore, by the resurrection, 
Jesus has been raised from the dead and God has proven that he is the one who's going to judge the world, just like he said back in Acts 17 in Athens. And so that what that means, Felix, is you're going to stand before Jesus and give an account for your life, and it's been proved by the resurrection. And so Felix is starting to get really nervous. He's like, he knows what he's done. He knows the kind of man he is. And so he's getting very nervous. And so catch this in verse 25. As Paul's talking about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, all part of the gospel message, right? Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. I think I've heard enough. He said, Why don't, you can go ahead and leave now. And when I find it convenient, I'll singe for you. And here's what we're going to find out. For the next two years, Paul's going to be in prison. And from time to time, on a regular basis, Felix is going to bring him back for two reasons. One, he wants to hear more about Jesus. But the other, remember Paul had brought a large financial offering to Jerusalem. He had resources. And so Felix is also hoping that maybe he can get some money out of this guy. And which fits his character. So when two, uh, it says, uh, when two years had passed, um, well, verse 26, at the same time he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Talking about Jesus all the time. Just hoping there would be an offering, like we're verse 4. And uh, verse 27, and when two years had passed, now can you imagine how frustrating this must be for Paul? Let me just add a quick sidebar here. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you, you're pretty sure what God wants of you? Remember what Jesus, Jesus had told Paul when he was arrested back in Jerusalem, as you've testified for me here, you'll testify in Rome. Paul was really clear. Have you ever been clear? You think you have a vision of what God has for your life. You think you know what his will is for your life. And you just can't get there. Nothing works out. Things keep falling through the cracks. It's just frustration after you keep praying and praying. And you keep, you're in prison. It's like nothing is working out. It's a storm, right? And that's what he's going through. It had to be very frustrating for Paul. And uh, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by another, the next governor, Portius Festus. Now, what a name, right? It just conjures up. I see a big man. I don't know. But uh, anyway, um, not like Portius Festus. Or but anyway, um, but the next Roman governor comes. Now, uh, what we know from secular history is that Felix was removed because of complaints by the Jews. So he's got to go and give an account for why he does such a lousy job of leading this, this, area, this province to Rome. And so he wants to stay on the good side of the Jewish leaders. And so as a last-minute favor, I think of presidents who go out and like pardon really bad criminals. You know, it's like, let's prepare the way for our future. Uh, <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Okay? So after two years of waiting of injustice, Paul is stuck with the next governor. I'm wondering, how in the world am I ever getting out of this mess? Right? So that's the passage. Well, what I want to do in our time together today is I want to focus on this big picture theme. The Apostle Paul keeps coming back to time and time what he calls the hope of Israel. Like, what's he talking about, and what does he mean 
that the, what this is all about is this hope of Israel. And what does that mean for our lives? And what are the implications for us today as modern-day followers of Jesus? And so there in your note sheet, there's a section called Hope 101, The Resurrection. And I want to start with just two big-picture principles that kind of help us understand, and then one pointed question at the end. So here we go. The first principle is that the resurrection of Jesus is the hope of Israel. This is what Paul is connecting dots for them. He's saying the resurrection of Jesus, it is the hope of Israel, or at least it's the next step in the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. This is his claim. Now, the question is, what is he talking about? Well, let's stand back and talk about what is the hope of Israel. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about is the prophets had said all along that that God is one day going to rescue all creation. There's going to come a day when God breaks into human history and turns all wrongs to right. It's often associated with the coming of Messiah. And that we live in this, this fallen world that we live in, a world of disease, a world of violence, a world of hatred, a world of oppression and injustice, that there's going to come a day when the day of the Lord will come. And God will come and he will judge the guilty and he'll save the righteous and he will restore all of creation. And he will bring what in Hebrew we say, he will bring shalom, which means more than just like peace, like absence of warfare. What it means is shalom has to do with a fullness of life at every level, life healed at every level. So the prophets had said one day a Messiah will come, God will break into human history, and he will restore all of creation. In the words of Isaiah, he will bring a new heavens and a new earth. And part of that hope was a resurrection of humanity, that we would be resurrected as a race with new bodies. And so this is the great hope of Israel, that God would one day act in human history to restore all wrongs, turns all wrongs to right. And what Paul is claiming is that the resurrection of Jesus is the start of that creation. That with the resurrection of Jesus, he has broken the power of death. He has broken the power of sin. His new body is the first step of the recreation of the whole universe. That everything the prophet said would one day happen, it's starting, and it's starting through the Messiah, and it's starting here, and it's starting right now, and your relationship to this new creation that's coming is dependent on your relationship with this Messiah. That's, and he says, so the story of Israel is wrapped up in the story of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the next chapter in this cosmic story that's being played out. And so I want you to see this. This is the point he's going to make all through the trial and hearings, these several years. He starts in chapter 23 when he goes before the Sanhedrin. We saw that last series. He comes today before Festus. He's going to come in a couple weeks. He's going to come before the next governor, uh, uh, Portius, uh, uh, well, I mean, Felix today, Portius Festus next time, and a king and a queen who are visiting dignitaries, Agrippa and Bernice. And I want you just to see this, how consistent it is that throughout this whole trial process, Paul is summarizing the message of Jesus, is that the message of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. This is what everyone knows. Okay, so here we go. So there in your note sheet, like back in Acts 23, this is when he was before the Sanhedrin. 
He says, so Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he called out to the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection from the dead. He's going to put the resurrection, make that the issue that's on trial. And then today, in chapter 24, before Felix, he says, however, I admit, remember, it's I confess, I confess, I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law that's written in the prophets, and I have the same what? Hope. I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, right? And then later on in that same message, he goes on and he says, uh, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ Remember, that means Messiah. The Messiah would suffer and be the, and catch this, the what? The first. Did you see that? That the Messiah would suffer and he'd be the what? The first to rise from the dead. Not the only one, the first. That we're breaking into a new era in human history. And he would proclaim light. Uh, in other words, we've been living in darkness. Light to his, to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so what Paul wants to make this about, he wants to understand the message of Jesus in his life, especially his resurrection, it is the hope of Israel. Everything the prophets said would happen are starting to happen and has been proven, not only who Jesus is, but the, the future is breaking into the present with the resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God is starting, you see? Now, here's what I want you to catch, you know what? That the moment you or I become a follower of Jesus, this is the story that we step into. This is the story we become a part of. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but a couple years ago, in fact, I mentioned this uh, last week, um, but a couple years ago, I did a series called uh, Epic. Remember that? And it was a series on the book of Ephesians. And in the opening chapter, uh, Paul starts off this amazing uh, chapter. In fact, we talked about this last week. And he says that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, that you find out that you've actually been chosen before time began to be part of this recreation process. And that when you come to Jesus, you're not only forgiven of your past, you're adopted into God's family, but even more than that, you're given the gift of his Holy Spirit to change you to be the kind of person that you'll live, that we'll need to have in that new creation. And that change starts now. And he says, um, and, and on top of that, each of you are gifted by his spirit to play an important role here and now in bringing, taking the first steps to bring all of creation healed and restored under his leadership. Now, it's not going to be fulfilled until he comes back, but we have a job to do our first steps here and now. And in that context, this is what he says. And I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 1, and the, after saying all that, he said, God made known to us the mystery of his will. And what Paul says is this wasn't revealed all in the Old Testament. God was kind of keep holding some cards to his, his chest. That uh, to bring all things in heaven on earth under one head. In other words, that God's vision from the beginning is to restore this break between heaven and earth, this fissure in the universe that's caused by sin. He wants to bring all of heaven and earth together under one leader again. That's our king, King Jesus even Christ, the Messiah. And he says, in him, we also were chosen, remember before time, he said earlier, having been predestined, before time, 
according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So God has a will for his creation. He's restoring it. When you came to Jesus, you became part of this plan. And then he goes on, in order that we who are the first to, to, to what? To hope in Christ. Don't miss that. We are the first to hope in Christ might become for the praise of his glory. Now, you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And once you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Think signet ring. You belong to the Lord. The promised Holy Spirit. So the gift of the Holy Spirit, our experience with the Holy Spirit, is the proof that we belong to God and that we are part of this future that's coming. He calls it a down payment. He says, um, so having believed, you're marked in with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, uh, who is a deposit or a down payment guaranteeing our, catch us, inheritance, this future world that's coming, until the redemption, in other words, the changing of our bodies, the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So, so Paul says that, Here's the big picture story that God's telling. There's a world that rebelled. The world broke apart, fissured. It's like it is. God has a plan to restore it. It's always been his plan to bring all of heaven and earth under the leadership of its true king. And when you came to Jesus, you became part of the story. And you received the Holy Spirit, which is your guarantee that the future is real and that the hope of the prophet's promise is, is going to come true. You see? Now, Here's what I want you to catch, and, and uh, if we're all good Catholics here, if some of you are good Catholics, you will remember this from catechism. Uh, if you're good Lutherans, you may remember this from catechism, but this is why in the New Testament there's three most important words to describe a Christ follower. Faith, hope, and love. Do you remember that? Some of you are going like, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, third grade, I got it. All right. Yeah, so faith, hope, and love. So, so why we call these the theo in, in, in uh, theological the, the theological virtues. From these, everything else comes forth, right? Faith, hope, and love. Faith is that you trust Jesus and you follow him. Love is we, how we live. We love God. We love people. Hope is where we're headed, where this story is going. Hope is about the recreation of this new heavens and new earth. And catch this, it is not... It is not playing harps on a cloud forever. <laughs> there is a reason that Isaiah calls it a new heavens and a new earth. There is a reason in Revelation, highly symbolic book, why the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. Heaven and earth restored. This next life it's not going to be ethereal. We're not ghosts. We don't play harps. It's not like a worship service for eternity. You get a body. It's a body like Jesus' body. It's physical. It's tangible. It's amazing. This world is just a shadow of the reality of that world. We're going to explore. We're going to be challenged. We're going to have responsibilities. We're going to learn. We're going to grow. We're going to be in a relationship. The best of life here is a pale reflection of there. And so for the Christ follower, this is why we say and sing, I believe in the resurrection. Because when we say that, we're not just saying, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. 
We're saying we believe in the resurrection of the race. We believe in the new world that's coming. And so Paul wants them to understand this story of Jesus that I'm telling, this whole thing about him, right? This is not a one-off miracle to prove he's who he is. It does do that. But this resurrection of Jesus is the proof of exactly what the prophet said would happen. It's the first step of the recreation of all the world. And what matters is what side of the Messiah you're on. You see? All right. Now, number two. The second thing, then, that that flows out of this, Paul wants us to understand, is the resurrection of Jesus requires a response. That if this is true, that God has broken into human history in the life of Jesus Christ, if it's true that the resurrection in the future world has started, if it's true that the gift of the Holy Spirit is is our down payment of what's coming, if that's all true, then it demands a response. That we can't just say, okay, so Jesus resurrected. Interesting. No, no, it it demands a response from us. And this is what Paul was trying to get across to Felix, and this is why Felix is getting so nervous. Felix wants to hear about Jesus. But when Paul starts talking about the future and the implications of the resurrection, And what it means to be restored to be the people that we were created to be. And once he begins to understand that it means we turn from our old life and we come under his leadership and we live a righteous life and we learn to control ourselves so we can live life to the full. And once he begins to understand that as Paul said in Acts 17 that God proved that this Jesus will be the judge of all the earth by raising him from the dead, what happens is that Felix begins, it goes from the philosophical and the interesting to the practical and the personal. And he begins to realize there are implications. If this is true, I will stand before your Jesus, and I will be judged by your Jesus, and I'm in trouble. And so he has an opportunity. And his opportunity is either to repent and bow the knee to Jesus and receive the gift of forgiveness and a new life. But for Felix, that price was too high. He didn't want to give it up. And so what he would do is he would postpone making a decision. For two years, he would bring Paul in because he loved hearing him, but he would never decide to follow. He postponed a response. And this is the one thing we cannot do. The resurrection of Jesus, if it's true, requires, demands a response. And that leads to the question. There you know, Chief. The question is, how are you responding to the resurrection of Jesus? Here here today, how are you responding in your life to the resurrection of Jesus? Now, I want to talk to two different groups of people here because we're in different places. Um, I want to talk first to those you 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 hear that you're not yet given your life to Jesus. So you're interested in Jesus. You're fasting with Jesus. You're here at Rocky Peak, 
most likely because there's something about Jesus and this message that's drawing you. You may be coming one month, you may be coming six months, this may be your very first time. But here's the point, if you have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, you're in the same exact place where Felix was. That you're here, like Felix, you are wanting to hear the word of God, you're, you're coming to hear about Jesus, you're wanting to know more, and yet you haven't yet made a decision. And yet, as we see, the resurrection demands a decision. Because if it's true, it means you're going to stand before Jesus as your judge. And like Felix, you need someone to cover your sins. Now, your sins may be different than his sins, but we all need someone to cover our sins before we stand before the judge of all the earth. And so, if you're here and you've not yet given your life to Jesus, I'm going to give you a chance in a couple minutes. But first, I want to talk with those of us who are Christ followers, and, and I want to ask you, how are you responding to the reality of the resurrection? Because here's the big picture. Once you understand this language of hope, you see it all the time. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Now remain these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You think of Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. You know, I remember your, your work uh, produced by faith, your labor of love, and your, this inspired by hope. You'll see this triad over and over again. It's like Paul's way of describing the Christian life. And once we understand this big picture story, you understand why the word hope is so important. It's like code for the story of where this story is going and our place in the story. And once you understand this, once you understand that the future is real, it's tangible, that this world is the shadow world compared to the real world, once you're clear on that, you begin to understand why the New Testament, why Jesus and the apostles are constantly saying, this life is all about the next life. And this is why Jesus will say things like, What does it profit a man if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? You see? This is why Paul will say things like in Romans 8, that if we're willing to suffer with him, then we'll experience the hope, the glory with him. You see this? Like constantly, the New Testament is set in this framework of story that begins with the, rebel the creation and then the rebellion, the redemption in Jesus and the coming new creations in the new earth. This is our story. And once you understand that, you understand why the New Testament is constantly saying we live this life for the next life. Anyone who wouldn't live this life for the next life is the ultimate fool. Do you know how long the next life is? It is a long time. And so the perspective of the New Testament is like, if you don't live this life for the next life, you are crazy. And so the question is, 
if you're a believer, how are you responding to the resurrection and the message that is true? And this is our hope. This is the story we're a part of that. See, for the Apostle Paul, this was tremendously motivating. In fact, we see a glimpse of it today in the passage where he's before um, Felix, and he says this in verse 14, uh, 24, 15, 16. He said, he said, I have the same hope in God as these men, the hope, that there will be a resurrection about the righteous and the wicked. So here it says, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and men. He says, I, I'm really clear where this story is going, and so I live this day for that day. I keep my conscience clear. I pursue God. I love people. I do what's right because I recognize that I'm going to stand before the judge, and I want to live this life for that life. Think of the parable of the talents, right? The parable of the talents. You, you know, well done, good and faithful versus you putting your, your treasure in the hole, right? You see? See, the whole New Testament operates as framework. We live this life for the next life. And so the question is, how are you responding to the reality of the resurrection and all that means? Hey, how does that show up in your checkbook? You know, Jesus said, what did he say? He said, hey, store up treasures in heaven. Because you store them up on earth, rust and moth and inflation are going to eat them up. How does that impact your moral purity? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize your bodies are now part of connected to Jesus' body? He lives in you. That body is going to be raised again. You need to treat that body well. You need to get rid of sexual impurity in your life. See, constantly the New Testament comes back and says, hey, we're living for that day. A husband, so let me talk to you for a second. Are you leading your wife well? Does she know that you love her? Are you serving her? Are you leading the way in your family spiritually? Are you passionately pursuing Jesus? Do you understand you're going to have to give an account for your wife and your leadership in your, your wife's life? One of my values this year, one of my top nine goals this year, I went away at the beginning of the year, is that and my wife is going to stand before the Lord someday. I want her to hear, well done, good and faithful. I don't want to hear anything less. What is my role in helping my wife hear that? And if she doesn't hear that because I'm not led well, how do I live with that? I could go on and on and on in every area of our life our priorities, our values, our love, our faith, you see? You see, if the, if the resurrection is real, it means the future is real. And if that's true, there are implications for today. Now, here's what I, whether you're a believer or not a believer yet, here's the one, one thing we don't want to do. Let's call it the Felix Syndrome. All right, let's avoid the Felix syndrome. Here's the mistake Felix made. He thought to postpone a decision meant he had not made a decision. Can I tell you something? To postpone a decision is to make a decision. 
And every time he sent Paul back to his cell and said, let me think about that, he was making a decision. He was making a decision to reject the evidence. And every time we hear the message of Jesus, the gospel, we reject it and say, I'm not quite ready. I need more evidence. That's fine, but just recognize what you're doing. You're saying, I'm choosing not to respond. I'm choosing to stay in rebellion. I'm choosing to stay in a place of sin. I'm choosing the place where I have no one to, to die for me, no, no forgiveness. And as a believer, when we don't act on what the Holy Spirit's telling us, understand what we're doing. We say, well, I'm not quite ready. I'm going to postpone. I need more. When the Holy Spirit's telling you what to do and you don't do it, you postpone that decision, you're not postponing. You're making a decision. And the decision is to disobey. And there are consequences. Demer switch consequences, life consequences, right? And so we don't want to make that fall in the trap of the Felix syndrome. That when the Holy Spirit is showing us truth, we need to respond. And the most important truth is the truth that the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of the story that God is telling. And it's the promise of where this, this story is going to end up. And how we respond will determine the part we play in that story. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to give you a chance to respond, both believers and non-believers. If you're a follower of Jesus here, sometimes we just need to be, like our eyes just need to be open to the reality of the situation. You know, and sometimes we're living and disobedience, or the Holy Spirit's been talking to us, and we've just been resisting. It's kind of like we're uh, tuning him out, like you would maybe your kids in the back seat in a long car trip or something. You're just kind of tuning them out, you know, and then, and then something comes, and the word comes alive, or God brings a message like this, and something happens, and you realize that you've been postponing decisions, and, and it becomes clear that you're not, you're not just waiting for more information, you're disobeying. And so if you're here today as a follower of Jesus, I'm saying, is there, is there an area of your life where you're postponing and not living out the reality of the resurrection, not living this life for the next life? Now, while our heads are bowed and you're thinking about that, I want to talk to those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. And I just want to say this. He loves you so much that he died for you. And uh, he's come after you in spite of your sin and your rebellion. He loves you uh, enough to die and he's made a way for you to come home, and he proved that he is who he claims to be by rising from the dead. There's great historical evidence for that. And so he's here today, and his invitation is that if you open the door of your life, he will come in, and he'll forgive you. And yes, you're going you're gonna to need to bow the knee to him. You're going to need to get on your knees and ask him not just to forgive you, but you're going to have to ask him to teach you how to live. You have to leave the dark side behind, right? His promise is he'll be with you every step of the way, that he'll lead you and guide you, he'll give you his Holy Spirit to empower you to change, and then you'll be on the right side of eternity. And so if that's you today and you want to give your life to Jesus, I want to pray, uh, I'm going to pray out loud right now, and if this expresses a desire of your heart, if you just pray along inside your mind or inside just under your breath that the Lord will hear and so let's, let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your life and death and resurrection for me. 
And I ask you to forgive me for all my rebellion and to cleanse me from all my sin. And I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and teach me how to follow you and to save a place in that story that goes on forever for me. And you begin to use me now to bring, help bring all of earth under your leadership, heavens and earth. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just ask Jesus into your life, first of all, I want to welcome you to the kingdom. You have just taken the first step of the most amazing adventure that's never going to end. And secondly, we would love to pray with you this week. I'd love to send you a letter just uh, with some steps of, here's some first steps in your new relationship with Jesus to get you started. And so I'd ask that in just a minute, we go into worship, we'll be taking our offering, and on the, inside your program is a little connect card, green and white. Just fill it out the front, and in the back say, Michael, I prayed the prayer, or I asked Jesus in my heart. We'll know what you mean, and then we'll send you that letter this week. And so, Lord, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection, the great hope of Israel, that we have now stepped into that story, and the hope of Israel has become our story. It's the great hope of the New Testament. That even as you are, so we will be. That we're not only forgiven, adopted, empowered, have a job to do, but there comes a time when we will receive our new bodies. All heaven and earth will be restored, and we will live an amazing future with you. It's physical, it's tangible, it's real. God, give us eyes to see, faith to trust in that future, and to live each day in light of that. As we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, would you use this place to be a place for the message of the great hope of all creation goes forth loud and clear. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's stand up and worship. Oh, God, that's our prayer, that our hope is in you, God, that our hope for the future is in you, our hope for our lives is in you, the hope for our nation, it's in you, and the hope of eternity, God, it's in you. And we are so thankful that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we know it is not a hope that is in vain. It is a hope that's historically rooted in reality. And so, God, we pray that today that we would lift up our eyes and that we would continue to focus on this future and live this life in light of that life, in our choices, in our decisions, in the way we think, in our values, in our priorities, in our purity, in our finances, in our homes, in our families, in our work, in our career, in our calling, in our hobbies. We live this life in light of that life, God, because the hope of Israel, the hope of the prophets has been fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection in Jesus. And so you have become our hope, the great hope of the future, and our hope is in you. God, our prayer is that you would help us to live every day in the light of that hope. And everyone said, amen. Amen, Rocky Peak, amen. Hey, well, a couple things as we go. Next weekend, we're going to continue this theme of hope. And what does it look like to live this day in light of that day? And so I hope you can be with us for that. Also, after the service, just want to remind you that we always have a prayer ministry to my right over here by these walls. Uh, and there's people over there with badges on. And they just prayer warrior. A lot of people love to pray. Hear what you're going through. Pray with you. So whether I mention it every week or not, it's always there. I want you to know that. And this will be a great time. Maybe you need some hope in your life. Maybe you're in a prison like Paul where you thought you know where you're going, but like 
it keeps on getting delayed and you just need some hope. And so maybe you want to go and pray about that. But whatever it is, um, I hope that you will do, hope, it's hard to say hope. I hope, hope you'll do that. So uh, may the Lord bless you. May he go with you this week and have a tremendous time as you celebrate all the goodness to God in our life as we celebrate Thanksgiving. And we'll see you back here next weekend. God bless you. Have a fantastic week. <laughs>